<clears throat> we really struggled with a title for this one. As you know, we follow a set format. I'll say, uh, is this still a good time, right? Which is a dumb question to ask. <laughs> we really wanted to be saying we're making conversations about making conversations count, count. But that's kind of a bit of a tongue twister. So instead, we're going to opt for making conversations about outbound, done right, count. They'll get on and say, oh, is this still a good time? Even though it's a scheduled call that's on the calendar, right? And then they'll go through and they'll drone through in the first three slides about their history, their backgrounds, grounds, grounds, grounds. Hello, you lovely podcast listeners. It's Wendy here. And you may have noticed those eagle-eyed amongst you that it's been a couple of weeks or so since we last released a conversation with an expert guest. And there's a very good reason for that. And it's because we are focusing more on the quality of the conversation than the quantity. And today we are going to blow you out of the water with yet another fantastic guest. Let me introduce John Barrows. If you are one of the 387-something thousand followers that he has on LinkedIn, you may well already know that he is a sales expert. And for me, the real depth of this conversation comes from giving a shit, as John would say. Now, John openly admits that he doesn't really enjoy making phone calls, but his overriding need to help the people that he's going to be speaking to far outweighs his discomfort or dislike. And that's a lot of what we see as sales trainers, telemarketing training, is to give you the better reason to want to pick up that phone and have that conversation and make it count. So today's conversation is really all about making sales calls and all that jazz. I did a little Google search last night and Wikipedia said that you were dead and that you played played the horn. So so we need to set the record straight. Yeah, that's definitely not me. (laughs) I haven't haven't set up my Wikipedia page yet, so uh, I've avoided that. Oh dear. And I was like, I'm going to have to just say, is there a music in the family? You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But There um, is, as a matter of fact, my dad was a saxophonist. And uh, uh-huh. so he, even though he was an electrical engineer, he also played the saxophone in front of thousands of people. And he was uh, a jazz artist himself. So, Wow. Well, that is something. And did, did any of that rub off on you, John? I wish. No, my <laughs> musical abilities are, are limited at best. This is one of those things where as a parent, you know, I look back on and, you know, the delicate balance, and I'm sure you you face it as well, is the, you know, how hard do you push your kid versus, you know, you like encourage them versus push them to do something versus just let them do whatever they want to do. Yeah. And this is one of those things where I kind of wish my parents had pushed a little bit harder on me to follow through on playing the saxophone, to follow through on playing the violin or any type of instrument, because now I am so musically uninclined that I, you know, I got a guitar, a friend of mine bought me a guitar. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'll try to play that. You know, maybe I'll try to learn that because it's a little bit easy. But 
No, I, I, I never, I played the saxophone as a kid. I played the violin as a kid and, and I just, uh, you know, typical kid. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. And my parents were like, okay, never mind. And so I, I, it never stuck with me, unfortunately. I love music because I grew up listening to all the jazz, you know, Miles, Dizzy, Coltrane, like all the greats in, in jazz. So that's actually where my foundation of love of music comes from. But my abilities in music are far from my <laughs> appreciation for it. Well, that's something that we share because I have two saxophones in a cupboard that I have not played 40 something years and then I bought a new one because the other one was in bits with a view to picking it up again about four years ago Mm. and it's that thing isn't it I said I would try Mm. try doesn't happen does it John no it doesn't no you gotta do but I'm I'm guessing that your parents encouraged you into doing other things instead because that was what you were leaning towards I mean, they didn't push me too hard in any direction. They just kind of supported me with whatever direction I was headed in. So, you know, basketball was something I took up, you know, that I really liked. And so they supported me playing basketball and I was pretty good at school, but it was never, you know, I've always said about myself and, you know, I've never been like a hardcore goal setter and like a a hard charger. I just, I know I got a, a really strong work ethic, but I'm definitely more of an evolutionist in the sense that I just kind of keep moving in a, a forward direction and make kind of decisions as I go to say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let me go there and then I'll get into it and then I'll be, all right, that's kind of interesting. So that's kind of been my whole life. And I think my parents just allowed that to flourish as I as I kind of meandered through uh, <laughs> the, the younger years of my life. Well, you, you've, you've not done bad out of it. And, and I know from reading some of the stuff that you put online is that, you know, sales was never on the radar as the vocation for you. Yet yeah. here we are, fast forward yep. to quite a good career and a book and a podcast and successful mentorships of people that are going off and doing their own things and so how did that all come about, John? Yep. You clearly share a passion for picking up the phone and um, talking to people. You're clearly good at that. I don't, quite frankly. I'm definitely more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. I, I, I've learned recently, apparently, I'm more of an ambivert, uh, whatever. And an ambivert is somebody who kind of adjusts to the situation, right? Yes, um, yes. But for me... I understand, I think I inherently understand what I have to do in order to do, get to where I want to be. And so therefore I'll make myself do it. But the joy of, I mean, to, to say, you know, I, I enjoy making cold calls and getting told, you know, no 99 out of a hundred times and hung up on and telling me they're going to, you know, go kill myself and everything else. I, I don't think anybody enjoys that. So, uh, you know, I enjoy, let's put it this way. The one I, you know, in a hundred. Let's just say that. Well, no, no, I yes. I, I mean, look, I enjoy helping people solve problems and achieve goals. And to me, that's what sales is about, right? You know, if you think of cold calling as trying to convince somebody to, you know, take a call with you or, you know, that type of stuff, uh, that's the part I don't enjoy. Uh, I don't enjoy the game of sales, you know, the back and forth and the clients not telling you stuff and you trying to figure it out and you lying to the client. Like, I don't like this. I don't, I'm, I'm a very transparent person and a very transparent seller. 
So I kind of, just in general, I've always been kind of cut through the bullshit. And it's like, let's, can we just have a conversation here? Cause I tell clients, you know, when I get them on the phone or something, look, give me five minutes and you're going to benefit either way. And the reason is we're either going to find out that I can actually really make a difference for you with what I have, or we're going to find out that I can't and I go away. So either one, you, you get to have a cool conversation. I share some insights with you and we can continue this and solve some problems for you too. You, you knock one more cold caller off your list, but give me five minutes. And I promise at the end of these five minutes, you'll, you'll see some value out of it one way or the other. And I think that's the mentality I take just like everybody. I mean, sales isn't something that most people, that's the reason I wrote the book. I want to be in sales when I grow up because no kid ever says that. Yeah. And then they get into college and I'm growing a deeper and deeper disdain for universities and the way they're managed. Uh, I think undergraduate education is, it's a great social education for children, but I think it's a terrible actual education for young adults because to go for three, here in the States, to go three, $400,000 into debt to get a $50,000 a year job that you're going to have to pay back for the rest of your life. Also have to determine at the ripe old age of 18 years old, what you want to do for the rest of your life. I just think that is insulting. And so for me, I I look at sales as a way to even the playing field for a lot of different people, people, you know, underprivileged, you know, women, people of color, like all these people who don't have the advantages that I do that a parent allowed me to go to college without debt because they paid for it and all that stuff. Sales is a career that can really, I mean, there's no barrier to entry. You don't need a college education to do it. You just need to understand the fundamentals of it and, and have a desire to help and have a desire to, to obviously, you know, money motivation is, is a key to, is a piece of that. But I think it's really, as I evolved and realized that marketing was not what I wanted to do and sales kind of fell into it through a transition with, you know, event marketing kind of, clouded as sales in some ways and then got into Xerox and really learned like, Hey, I like this. The harder I work, the more I get paid. Cause that was something that always really stuck with me and frustrated me was when I was getting a salary for my first job and, you know, thinking about when I was able to get a promotion, it was like, wait a minute, I'm working harder than everybody else here. I'm better than everybody else here but I'm still getting paid the same amount of money that everybody else is. And I'm still going to get the opportunity for a promotion that everybody else is. So what in the world is my motivation to work hard? And so when I got that, that's why I like the DeWalt job, that was more of a salary job. Whereas even though it was sales, I know, then I went I to Xerox. Because my husband is in construction and he's a Milwaukee guy, you know. But I love the uh, no. But, uh, but um, I think he's just, you know, probably is just a bit tight but <laughs> but it, it's, it's that you know just try it and I'll come back and see what you think of it that to me that's is it's common sense that's obvious it's trusting that somebody will look after it for you and not do a runner and uh, and that mm-hmm. it it ought to do a better job because you you know it this is half the battle with with sales isn't it is is that belief in what it is that you're doing more than half the battle because I, I don't think you can truly be successful and so you can be monetarily successful in sales, but I think it depends on what your definition of success looks like. Mine is doing things with integrity, making sure that yes, you make money, but you're not doing it despite other people is believing in what you sell makes it so much easier because somebody had said to me earlier in my career that that sales is the transfer of enthusiasm, right? And I I still believe that to this day, that if you believe in what you're selling, then you know, it, 
it's about transferring that enthusiasm over to somebody. Still, the statistics and the psychology is still the same. People buy on emotion. They back it up with facts. Right. I mean, look, just look at where we are in our political world. Literally no one believes in facts anymore. I mean, facts are like, no, you can't believe a single thing you read on the Internet that is even that even looks like it's scientifically backed because people just don't believe it. It's all emotion. It's all. So, so if you can tap into that, when you have the emotion and you genuinely believe in what you're doing and you find the right person that you know you can help, then it's, then it, I don't want to say it's easy, but man, is it easier? No, but when that does happen, doesn't it feel like magic? When you make that connection, it's like I said, it doesn't end up, you don't end up selling. You end up having a real conversation. You end up solving real problems. You end up making a real difference, right? You don't have to use any of the techniques or, you know, any of the tactics that even I talk about. It is those the, the, these words of influence and persuasion and strategies and tactics, all of those things. And I just go, why can you not just ask us an open and honest question I think it's because we're past the point of no return on that. The, the trust factors disappeared. You know what I mean? You know, I, I hear a lot of, you know, sales influencers kind of talking about, oh, you know, just have a conversation and don't use tact. You know, you don't need to use a tactic. Eh, eh, uh, you have to. I wish that, that Wendy, I could cold call you and you would just pick up the phone because you figured, oh, who's going to call me today? And we can get into a really nice conversation and I could ask you some real questions questions and you could tell me your real problems and I could build a little rapport with you and then we can move to the next step. But that's just not reality, right? Yeah. So where I talk about the where I play, the techniques are important. And the reason the techniques are important is because of that exact scenario that I just painted there. Like I tell people that I, I live between the world of the give shit factor and the unconscious competence level. Right. So, you know, the whole journey of competence, right? You start, you're unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know when you start something. And then you move to consciously incompetent. You know, you don't know. Then you move to consciously incompetent, then consciously competent, then unconsciously competent. That unconsciously competent where you just do it. You just are that level. So the give a factor first, I cannot get you to give a first. I, like that's, that's on you. You either care or you don't. I can help you care. I can show you why you should care, but unless you care, I, I'm not, it's like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right. And you can even you can't have salt help an, to it. And that doesn't make right. any difference. Yeah. And it, like, you can't help an alcoholic unless an alcoholic legitimately raises their hand and says, I need help. Right. Yeah. So once that happens though, once you're there, Man, I will give you as many techniques, tactics, and tips as you can possibly imagine so that you can figure out how to get to the point where you're unconsciously competent with a lot of the stuff that you do. And that's where it turns into the real conversation. Like, I don't technically use any of the techniques that I train anymore. And it's because they're embedded in me. They, they, I know how to conscious. run. Exactly. exactly. I just yeah. do them. I just, when I hold a conversation, I know how to set the stage. I know how to manage a conversation. I know how to follow up. I inherently get a next step for what I do. Like all these little pieces that I've learned over the past 25 years in selling, I just do now. But I had to have that technique to get me to figure out how to do it my way. That's the point though, I think, isn't it? Is that these tactics and strategies are so blatantly copied Ugh. to other people's cardboard cutout yeah. that then 
you're not going to be in alignment because you don't even sound like you. That's what really sticks, isn't it? And I think that's the challenge, right? I've always, you know, talked about my disdain for for scripts, right? Like a script, like a cold call script. I've always hated it. I've always loved structure, right? Because you can play within the structure and you can make it your own and Same. everything else. Yeah. The problem though is, and again, we have to look at the evolution of a sales professional getting into the career. When you start in sales, you literally have no idea what you're doing or what to even say. Mm-hmm. So as much as I hate scripts... I think they do have a place in a sales rep's evolution, right? I'll give you an example here. When with JB Sales, like we we do sales training, right? And I have a slide deck. It is a slide deck of our training that goes slide, you know, one through however many. When a new trainer comes on board, I need them to learn how to deliver that entire slide deck. And you're going to have to deliver it with my stories, my examples, and all that other stuff because you just don't have them yet, right? So that's how I kind of give you your badge and feel like, okay, at least he or she can get through the entire program here. Good. Now though, if I come back and audit your course two months later, three months later, and you're still delivering the exact same slides, the exact same way that I was delivering them and telling them the exact same jokes that I deliver, then I'm going to be disappointed because you need to make it your own. So I think there's a starting point with a script to give us a, okay, like I just got to, but then very quickly figure out, move to structure and make it your own. I know when I've been training people on the phone is that they've come into a role and half of the battle is that they don't even understand the computer system, the CRM. They're not quite sure what they've got to track where and at what point. So, you know, they're, they're, they're conscious that they've got all of this technology that they've got to master and handle whilst they're trying to listen and yeah. speak and hold down a conversation all at the same time. So you do need that structure to to layer them up. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the other part that I think is getting in the way. All this technology that we invest in for sales professionals, nine times out of 10 in my in my experience, it gets in the way of productivity, it does not help with productivity. And the reps get so focused on the technology that they stop focusing on the client. You know, these cadence tools. I, you know, I have a hard time with these cadence tools because when used correctly, I think they're really good efficiency tools for sales reps who are experienced and understand how to use them and and how to understand how to engage with people. But for inexperienced reps, it's a crutch and they end up just pushing buttons. And I go back to the give a factor. You know, I use the example when Morgan worked for me, you know, he came, we were, you know, we had started off and we were doing all this stuff and I was helping him with his messaging and he was getting pretty good results with his cadences and his approaches, but then he plateaued. And he came to me and he said, you know, I don't understand. I feel like I'm doing all the right stuff, but I'm just not getting the responses that I'd expect based on the stuff that we're doing. And I said, Morgan, your results aren't going to change until one thing does. And he said, what? And I'm like, until you start giving a shit. And I said that and he, and I get, I'm like, look, I understand you give a shit about this job and all that stuff. I get that. But until you actually start caring about the person on the other end of that phone number that you're looking at, or that other end of that email that you're looking at until that happens and you start having empathy for that person and thinking about the day in the life of what they're faced with every day and how many times they get hit up by certain things and what their bosses and, you know, are yelling at them for like, until you really care like your results are going to be mediocre at best. But once you break through that care factor and you actually start like throwing away the technology and looking at somebody as a human being, you start to see some pretty impressive results. And I think you can easily have that curve that's going upwards with results and get comfortable in that 
mm-hmm. and actually just start sleepwalking through it because oh, 100%. you think you think you've cracked it you think well this is this is all i need to do then that's kind of where the conversation starts to fall flat doesn't it it goes two dimensional so many sales reps get stuck going through the motions, right? And and I use, whether it's cadences or presentations, I mean, <laughs> presentations like demos are one of my least favorite things in sales. They literally are because every demo is exactly the same. You know, rep starts off, thanks so much, you know, is, do we still have 30 minutes here? Great. Or, you know, the, no, they don't say that. They'll say, uh, is this still a good time? Right. Which is a dumb question to ask. <laughs> Right? Um, Can they still say that? Oh, goodness. Oh, yeah, 100%. They'll get on and say, oh, is this still a good time? Even though it's a scheduled call that's on the calendar, right? And then they'll go through and they'll drone through in the first three slides about their history, their backgrounds, their logos, and all great all about them. Then they'll drone through every single slide and they'll stop intermittently saying, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Which is a dumb thing to ask again. Yeah. And at the end, they'll get- Who's going to say, get, oh, no, I'm stupid. I can't follow Right, that. exactly. Yeah. And even if they say yes, it doesn't tell you whether or not it made sense. And then at the ends and you know i always joke on this one if you ever hear this at the end of one of your demos you know you've done a miserable job and it's the word digest right hey wendy i'm just a little time to digest what you just told me right there why don't we circle back in a couple of weeks where if, if you hear that you've done a horrible job as a sales professional because it is our job to help them digest the information if it is if they walk out of the conversation more confused than they were walking in we've done a pretty terrible job as a sales professional so all these reps are on autopilot because that's how we're training them. That's how we onboard them. We stuff them with product knowledge. We don't give them soft skills. We don't give them an understanding of how to engage with a customer. And then we throw them out into the world and we tell, here's your quota, good luck, you know, go. And we expect them to be the super dynamic sales professional that's really gonna be thoughtful about the needs of the client. Like that's just, we're, we're setting them up for failure. There is a place that bosses out there when sales is is kind of the lifeblood, that's the mentality that I don't understand is, you know, teaching this and to say, well, yeah, well, you know, 4% month on return is, you know, that's that's good enough for us. I think it's pure laziness. And I think it's also the short-term mentality we all have in today's world, the instant gratification component to it. It is very hard to coach on quality. It is very hard to coach on, you know, the the real nuances. It's really easy to coach on numbers, right? 50 yeah. dials, 100 cadences, whatever it is. And also the pressure and I you know, I I live mostly in the in the SaaS and tech world, right? So the pressure from the top, from the VCs down to grow at all costs is pretty significant. And so it's it's so that's why managers are are more deal chasers than they are coaches, right? Because they they know how to close a deal. So they're going to jump in and close a deal before they're actually going to coach the rep on how to close the deal. And so I, I think there's a lot of factors into in, in it that are putting us in a pretty tough spot to to really do it the right way. You know, quotas, all that stuff is is stuff that is easy to easy to manage from a objectivity standpoint, but the subjective part is where the magic happens. Would you say that in sales, and, you know, I know that at the moment, you know, we're seeing an an awful lot of people moving around in jobs, that the market is struggling to recruit good people and people are commanding bigger salaries and things like this. Mm -hmm. I know that you've said, you know, it's uncapped earnings, but do you see that there's a place for like market share in the business for the employees is, is a good way of getting them invested in what it no. is doing? 
No, I'll be straightforward. I, I see so many companies in the SaaS world play with that exact thing. Like, oh, we'll give you shares. We're going to give you equity. And unfortunately, most reps have no idea what that actually means. And so it sounds very sexy and it feels really good to sound like you have, you know, shares of a business and that type of thing. But I think it's like 2% of companies actually, you know, the, like the reps actually realize that if they stay, you know, and that's only if they stay long enough to have some sort of major exit with the company. So I, I think it's, there's a lot in the SaaS world going around of that false narrative of, oh, no, 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 we'll give you equity, we'll give you shares. And that's, you know, that's going to be part of your package. Like most reps are getting savvy to that now and realizing that that really is, that's a promise that is almost never realized for most. And even still, and I'll put myself in this bucket. I was ignorant when I was, you know, 23 years old, I started with my first uh, startup and it was a friend of mine. It was two friends of mine and, and another person that started a company. And I came on board as the fifth employee and they gave, and I didn't know anything about startups. I, I literally knew nothing about startups. And so I called my uncle in San Francisco. This was 20 years ago. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving Xerox and going to this startup. You know, how, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, make sure you get equity though. Right. And I was like, okay, well, what should I ask for? Like, you know, he's like, well, you're not a founding member. So ask for two, expect 1%, you know, and go from there. Right. And I was like, okay. So I did. Right. And I got my 1%, which was more than anybody else got in the business outside of those three founders. Okay. Is now, that, for seven did anybody years, else ask? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah, uh, and okay. then, you know, everybody, you know, people got a half percent, people got whatever, but I, I got a okay. 1%. So let's fast forward, you know, after the first two or three years of the business, me and the other director levels, right? We were the ones that put the company on our back and basically brought this company to, to acquisition, right? And we worked seven days a week, like, you know, 14, 15 hours a day type of stuff for seven years, okay? And I was underpaid, quite frankly, you know, like, like from a salary standpoint or in a, in a total comp standpoint. I mean, I was at one point responsible for 75% of the, of the revenue that came into a business that was doing $10 million a year. And I was getting paid probably 60, 70, $80,000 a year. I didn't break six figures until I was five, six years into it. Now we had an exit. We sold to Staples. Oh, and I, and I knew it was going to be bittersweet because we sold for 12 million. Okay. My little 1% of that ultimately was worth $80,000, which $80,000 is a lot of money. Okay. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. It helped me get a down payment on my house. Yeah. But if you take that 80,000, let's, let's round it to to eight years. I was there like, cause let's just do some easy math. Well, that means $10,000 a year on top of what I made. And I was averaging $60,000 a year. So for eight years, I basically averaged $70,000 a year. I could have gone to any other sales organization and made over $100,000 a year based on what I was doing in those 10 years. And, and, and don't give me equity at all. Just give me commissions and let me go. And I would have made far more money. So my point is, is that lore of equity, I think is actually a very dangerous thing for, for executives to play around with and present to without the knowledge because these kids coming out of school they have no they have no real understanding of what ultimately that is going to look like dependent you know based on the exit and so therefore it sounds great to them and so they'll say yes and potentially take less as a total comp because of that that guarantee but i think you you answered the question of why people don't invest that much and why do the managers don't care if it's the lifeblood of the business. Well, I think the average tenure of a sales rep right now is like 16, 17, 18 months or something. So wow. if I'm a business leader, why would I invest all this money into somebody? But it's like this chicken and the egg scenario, yeah. right? Because if I don't Paradise. invest in them, they're going to leave. 
But if I do invest them and they leave, I don't get the ROI on that investment. So, ah, what do I do? <sighs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're in business and everything's a risk, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's why I think, you know, what, what my approach to this is and why we have had, you know, very little, you know, very little turnover uh, within, I mean, we only have 15 people here, but, you know, we hire on values, period, right? I built this company on values, on my personal values, and then we've evolved them to our business values. And that's what we hire on. I don't hire on experience. I don't hire on skill. I don't hire, I mean, all that stuff's important. Don't get me wrong, but I can teach skill. I can teach yeah. technique. I can teach all that other stuff. I can't teach values. I can't teach drive. I can't teach passion. Those are things that I have to hire for. And when you hire for those and you you look for customers that share those values, you start to get long-term commitments from people and customers and everybody else. And it starts to work really, really well. I do listen to your podcast. I don't listen to many, but you're on my list. And uh, and I Appreciate love the, the soul searching that you do with your guests, you know, as you're... Yeah looking to you know open your own eyes and everybody else's eyes to 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 the world and what's going on and you know that unconsciousness that that a lot of us are, are sleepwalking through you know there's that word again God. it's it's so true and it's and it's sad for me to watch people who go through I'll, I'll, you know quick example i'm on tiktok right i'm getting my ass handed to me on tiktok by a bunch of you know kids who, who you know yell at me and for everything i put out there which is fine but one of the things that was really saddened to me is i, I did this post and it went viral um, over two million views i think at this point and it was a little piece of a podcast that i was doing with my friend amy volas about recruiting and hiring and, and and applying for jobs and i said if you're just applying for jobs by sending your resume out to a million people you're and I and I probably shouldn't use the word, but I said, I said you're pathetic. You know, you're, you're if you're just basically clicking a button, sending, and doing nothing more than that to find a job, and you're complaining that nobody's ever getting back to you, I think that's pathetic, right? And I said, hey, you know, and I did a B two B approach to getting a job, which is, hey, go on a company's website, look at their values, uh, you know, figure out how they connect with yours, make sure they do, and then fire off an email to one of the executives and say, hey, I'm looking for my next career option here. Your values align directly with what I want to do with my career and mine. And I was wondering who could I have a conversation with about a potential opportunity here. I didn't want to just submit my resume. I want to see if this is right. So something basic like that. I've done it a bunch of times before. I've helped hundreds of people get jobs that way, right? And TikTok just exploded on me about, yeah, you're ridiculous. Like, oh yeah, sure. I'm just going to you know email Jeff Bezos. I'm going to email. And then, it, but then it got into like, companies don't care about their employees. I'm just, I just want a job. I just want a paycheck. I'm just, and I'm like, and I get it. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I literally have privilege tattooed on my, I, I understand my privilege. Okay. As a white male in this world, I understand, hopefully, I think more than most, the privilege that I've been granted just by being a white male in, in this world today. Okay. But I know so many people and I've talked to, I, there's so many examples of people that do not have anywhere near my privilege that grew up in the ghetto, that were in terrible situations growing up and they changed their mindset to say, I don't accept this. I, I want to be better. I want to get to that next level. And they've done it. And so it's this limiting mindset that I think so many people have that force them to go through the motions and just kind of give up basically saying, there's nothing I can do about this. And today's world right now, 
I mean, there are more opportunities in today's world than there ever has been in in the history of human civilization to make money, to do what you want to do, to get on the internet and and be a YouTuber, you know, like be an Amazon reseller. Like there's a million different ways if you decide you want to change your situation. But let's go back to what we had said earlier. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. And that's the problem. I think this limiting mindset has on a lot of people is they've been so beaten down and so discouraged that they just don't believe that there is an option for them. And I, and I, my hope is is that some of the shit content I share and stories I share through those soul searching of my own and others that I bring on the show help connect to other people who might have that limiting mindset and might be able to say, huh, well, they did it. Maybe I can. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was a latched door key at seven. Um, Me too, yeah. Had to use tin opener, toast toppers, use the grill, you know, gas, could have burned the house down, whatever. And I understand that mindset is that I knew that there was better and it was Mm -hmm. mine. And that was all I told myself. There is better than this and it's mine. What surprises me is that this new generation, this Gen Z, I don't even understand where that came from. It's old. It's... It's the it's the extremes that people push back on. Oh yeah, I'm going to email Jeff Bezos. Well, yeah. like you go, like anybody's going to do that, right? Right. And the other extreme is that nobody gives a shit. Well, yeah. it, it's it's kind of like where's the middle ground <clears throat> gone? No, we've lost the middle. The the world has lost the middle. I mean, it, it's the fringes. It it's the fringes that dictate everything right now. Like the, I, I firmly believe that the vast majority of us, and I'm going to say over 70 to 80% are just good people trying to do good work, make a decent living, take a few vacations, take care of their family. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, you know, we might lean a little bit one way or the other, have different opinions about social, you know, things versus others, but it's the, it's the loudest people that get the, that, that get the news. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Example here is, I remember, and this is a horrible one because I hate this person, but back when he actually had a show that I thought was kind of cool, Trump, when he had The Apprentice, right? With The Apprentice show, when I saw it, I was like, this is awesome. It was an entrepreneurial thing. And I was like in it. My wife was like, you got to join that show, right? And this was this was actually when I pseudo respected Trump, right? And I didn't, under, I didn't realize what type of a person he actually was. But I remember going and there was 10 people you had to interview, right? You had to interview yeah. to, to get from the 10,000 people down to the Mount. And, and um, we, we went in at 10 at a time. And the two, there was two interviewing women interviewing the, the 10 of us and they would throw out questions and they would see how people would react to them. And then they would say, okay, this person's good. This person's bad, whatever. And they said, they said, okay, this is going to be a, you know, this is a business interview. This is, we, we want serious business people. And so I was like, all right, I got my suit and tie there. I'm ready to give a business oriented answer. And the first question they throw out there is, what do you think about gays in the workplace? And I just, I just rolled my eyes and I'm like, oh, Jesus, Really? And I gave what I thought was a very thoughtful answer, basically like who cares, you know, about their gender, like what do they do and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, two or three people on the end started screaming and yelling about how it's ridiculous and all this other stuff. And you literally saw the interviewers look over and take and look through and find their resumes and put them in the green box 
And, you know, the people who are, who are just throwing absolute rubbish out of their mouth, right? That's what they wanted because that's what people, that's what people are interested in. That's what people care about. They care about that's controversy. The they're attracted to it. You know, negative stuff gets 10 times more exposure than positive stuff. We're in a world right now where 80%, there was a study done on this, that 80% of the tweets that get sent out don't even get clicked on they just get reposted based on the title and the title alone so that you combine the laziness factor with the we've lost giving the benefit gamified of the doubt. it they've gamified, we've gamified it. it we've absolutely now it's like how many likes and how many of this can you get and there's the endorphin rush there and we've also lost giving people the benefit of the doubt you know what i mean like that we've lost if if somebody offends you now it's no longer like well hold on a second. Let me explain to you why that offended me. Right. It's, Oh, you're the worst person on the planet. It's and it. And it drives me absolutely crazy. I'll give you a quick example for me. And I'll be again, open on this, the, the pronouns piece. Okay. You know, I, I, all right, cool. Like uh, he, she, they, whatever the, 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 they one, I have a really hard, I I'm really trying to understand. And so when I make a mistake, for instance, say, Wendy, you were somebody who identified as they, okay. And if I call and if I said, oh, she, right. And, and if in a conversation and I was explaining and you were here and I was like, oh yeah, Wendy, she did this. But if you identify as they, there's two approaches, right? One is an educated one, which is, hey, John, I just want to, you know, maybe take me aside afterwards and be like, hey, John, I just want to let you know, I, I identify as a they, this is how I, and if I appreciate it, if you're moving forward, you could do that. And if you did that to me, I'd be like, oh my God, Wendy, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm a little curious on this. Could you help it, you know, a little, a little bit more. Explain further. But it's understanding, right. right? But that's never the response. It's you, uh, how dare you call me she? How dare you call me? How dare you assume my pronoun? And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This, you know what I mean? Like, this is a new thing for everybody here. Can we all help each other out and, and get better together here? But, you know, it, it, we've lost that. We've lost giving people the benefit of the doubt. And look, I understand people are trying to get represented. I understand that there, there's been a whole host of people that have been suppressed for years and, and, and brutally so but it doesn't switch overnight. Let me tell you about my Power Up programme. An hour and a half with me and accountability later. It's by no means ever going to fix everything. But what it will do is it will allow us to find one area that's a key priority for you to implement straight away into your business and allow you to just see the other areas that you need work on. It's a great stepping stone into the 12-week building block program. Just book a chin wag. Let's have a natter and let's see how I can help you. We're going to carry on that conversation in just a moment. But first... Oh, how I do love that John does not condone scripts. We know that scripts are helpful for certain personality types for learning. However, the reason that you have good rapport when you're talking to people is that you are enabled with a structure of the conversation that allows you to be you and not a parrot fashioned agent or a robot. Because let's face it, you know, AI and things like that are being used in the sales world 
but there's really nothing that can replace the human connection. And that's something that I teach and John teaches too. If you'd like to implement the 4R formula in your business, and a quick reminder of what that is, is to find the right people for the right reason, for the right time, and track those results. Then get in touch for my one-to-one or team training programs. I've helped literally thousands of people already. Let me tell you about my Power Up program. An hour and a half with me and accountability later. It's by no means ever going to fix everything. But what it will do is it will allow us to find one area that's a key priority for you to implement straight away into your business and allow you to just see the other areas that you need work on. It's a great stepping stone into the 12-week building block programme. Just book a chin wag, let's have a natter and let's see how I can help you. I'm in the show where I ask every guest to share that one conversation that changed everything. Mm. A few, but I'll go back to, I actually wrote a blog post on this a while back. It's called the the biggest lesson I've ever learned in my entire life. And it was when, let's go back to my first startup where I was the fifth person and we sold, right? So we sold to Staples and when we were selling to Staples, they, the executives were doing interviews with our executive team, right? And we had none of us. We were all so young. We were like 27, 26, 27. And we had no idea. So we brought a consultant in to tell us what to do, basically, right? And, and they basically said, these are the type of questions they're going to ask. And this is the answers you should give. Now, me being a minority shareholder, I did not want to screw this up. So I, I went with it, right? So when it was my term to inter- time to interview with this gentleman, Jay Baitler, who was running a $12 billion part of Staples who was buying us. I sat and I, I told the company line, he asked, you know, Hey, how, you know, what do you think about this acquisition? And I was like, Oh, it's going to be great. And, you know, and in the back of my head, I'm going, you guys are going to chew us up and spit us out. We're all probably going to get fired here in six months. Right. But I, I, pre- I presented as if, you know, I was on board with all this. Now I'm probably, I told you transparency is probably a, a superpower of mine, good or bad. I'm one of the worst liars you'll ever come across. And so it was pretty evident to him that I was full of shit. And needless to say, uh, he had a negative impression of me. Of all the leaders, right? He came back to my CEO and my CEO was like, so what'd you think? And my team, and he was like, oh, you got a great team here. He's like, I got one concern though, and it's John. And my CEO was like, wait a minute, what? He's like, out of all the people I thought you were going to have a problem with, it was like, John's like the heart and soul of this company. Like he, like he literally stands up every single month and gives the rah-rah speech, what's going on? And Jay's like, no, nope, he's not your guy. So my CEO protected me. But, you know, I stayed on board, but it was a struggle. I was not the right fit. Jay was right in a lot of ways. I'm not a corporate guy. I don't fit in the corporate structure. I have zero filter uh, and I don't play politics. And so long story short, a year in, he fired, they fire me. Okay. Well, they offered me another position, but they fired me. A little tip for everybody listening here. If you're, if you're ever a VP of anything in a startup that gets your company to a certain level, and then the company hires an SVP of that role, that's the organization firing you. So that's just a little tip for everybody out there. Um, so anyways, about, about a year afterwards, um, so I got fired and, I, and it took me a couple of weeks to kind of digest what had happened. But then I reached out to Jay and I said, hey, Jay, for my own personal and professional development, 
um, would you mind if I had some time on your calendar to talk about what actually happened? And, and so I could learn from this. And this, this person who I had been pretty much afraid of for a year was so open and generous with his time. And when I showed up at his office, he goes, John Barrows, get in here. And I was like, uh-oh. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, let me tell you this. He goes, the fact that you reached out to me after what happened to you and you want to have this conversation tells me more about you than I knew about you in the year working with you. He's like, I'm here. He's like, I will answer any question that you have. And my favorite thing to do is, is mentor young leadership. And so the time is yours. And so I said, Jay, I got 10 questions for you. You can answer them as candidly as you want. You don't have to answer them if you don't want to. And one of the questions, he's like, I will answer them as candidly as you want me to. And so I said, one question I said is, would you have been open to this type of conversation when I was working for you? And he's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I have been? I was like, well, Jay, I was kind of told that I wasn't allowed to speak with you. And he goes, John, let me paint two pictures for you. He's like, I'm going to ask you, first of all, what's the risk? And I was like, what do you mean? What's the risk? I, the risk is I get fired. I, I got a family. I got employees that rely on me. I'm like, that's the risk. He goes, well, let me ask you something. Say you did this. Say midway through your career, you know, a year ago, you went over your boss's head, your CEO's head, and you, you asked for this meeting with me and I annihilated you. You know what? I was like, this is ridiculous. I ratted you out to your boss and it was a bad meeting. He's like, would you have wanted to work for me after that? And I was like, well, probably not. He goes, do you think you would have then made a decision to leave the organization based on your terms instead of ours? I was like, yeah, probably. He goes, okay, now let's paint the other picture. Say you came to me, you went over your boss's head and we had this conversation and it went just like this. He's like, do you think the last year of your life would have been a lot easier and we could have done a lot more cool things together? He's like, well, yeah. He goes, then I'm going to ask you again, what's the risk? That conversation was basically my MBA. I now look at things completely different when I make decisions. I used to say, always have a plan B. I disagree with always have a plan B because I think your plan B distracts from your plan A. I'm a burn the boat type of guy. You know what I mean? Put me on the island, burn the boat, and, not, and I have to figure out a way to get off. But the, when I make decisions now, I ask myself, what's the absolute worst case scenario here? Let's go tactically here from a sales standpoint. Say you're dealing with somebody below the power line and you have to go over somebody's head, right? To get to their boss. Well, what's the worst case scenario? Well, you lose the deal, right? Okay. Well, if you're okay with losing the deal, then go over that person's head. If you're not okay with losing that deal, come up with a different strategy. So that one conversation uh, changed a lot of, of how I make decisions and how I, uh, how I think about things. Oh, and by the way, as a cherry on top to that example, fast forward, I had an opportunity to work for Jack Welsh like GE Jack Welsh, when him and Susie Welsh started their online MBA program, they needed a VP of sales. So I had the opportunity to go work for him. And I did for a couple of months. But as I was going through the interview process, uh, they asked for references. Guess who I gave him as a reference? Mm. Jay Baitler, the guy who fired me from Staples, I gave as a reference. And you know what Jay Baitler told Jack Welsh when Jack Welsh called to ask about me? He said, if you don't hire John Barrows, you're an idiot. So because of that conversation, not only did I learn from that conversation, but I also had the opportunity to work for one of the greatest CEOs of all time for three months as you know, we figured out his online MBA program. So came full circle. That was a conversation that was meant to happen, even though it could have been a little less painful for a year. It needed to be painful for a year. No pain, no gain, isn't it? It's like the gym. One of my dad's favorite lines, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, that's going to resonate on so many levels. 
that I'm not going to mention them now. I'm just going to get the listeners to just come on, come on and tell us what, what you think. If anybody has any questions or anything I can help with, I do a lot of free consulting and answer questions on Instagram. My handle is John M as in Michael Barrows, B-A-R-R-O-W-S. It's also my website. It's also my Twitter handle. It's also my TikTok handle. But you can also check out our new uh, website. It's Sell Better. Dot XYZ. So you go to sellbetterxyz.xyz, you'll see a whole bunch of new content. We also have a YouTube channel that has tons of free content on there as far as tips and nuggets and things that you can do to, to help better yourself across the board, whether it's sales tactics or mental health or anything like that as well. So tons of free resources out there. If there's anything I can do to help anybody uh, get to that next level in their career, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears and I'm happy to help. As generous as ever. Of course, we'll stick it all in the show notes so nobody has to sort of try and write everything down right now. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait for the next conversation. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on here, Wendy. I hope you agree that that was some quality conversation with John. And I do really, really pray that you go away and you change up some of those opening questions and statements that you use in your conversations to help that flow better for you. If you get stuck, do reach out to me and to John. You know, we're here to help. We're insane to be doing this, but we genuinely love what we do in helping others have those conversations that count. So drop us a line, pop us a review. If you do leave a review, we'll give you a shout out on a future episode. Next time, we're going to be making conversations about the entrepreneurial process count. I've worked with a lot of people online that have done well, and they may have made it in a weekend. They typically blow it in a month, and then they can't figure out what they did that worked in the first place. (laughs) 